Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If you are not, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with academia, innovators, startups, NGOs, all looking for solutions to the greatest challenge of our time. My name is Samuele Tini, and this is the Sustainability Journey. Welcome to another episode, and today I'm thrilled to discuss an important topic, the private sector partnership. It's really important. We have discussed many times in the podcast uh, the issue of business, the private sector, and we do it with an expert. We do it with Elvira Goetz, who is a private sector partnership specialist at the United Nations. So thank you so much, Elvira, to come to us and explain us this such important topic. Sure. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here with you today. And and we know private sector is crucial for achieving our goals to solve our crisis. But before that, our question, who is Elvira? What is your sustainability journey? Can you walk us through how you have become an expert at the United Nations? Yes, sure, Samuel. So I've been working for the United Nations for almost 20 years now. Actually, this year I'll be celebrating my 20 years anniversary with the United Nations. So I've been working for several UN agencies, starting with UNESCO, which is headquartered in Paris, as as you know. No many Italians know UNESCO pretty well because Italy is the place where we have most World Heritage Sites in the world. So, yeah. So then I also moved to another UN agency, which is the International Labour Organization in Geneva. Worked for the UN Capital Development Fund in the, that was also back in Paris, in the role of private sector partnerships officer. Then I moved to Nairobi, Kenya, where I'm sitting right now. At the beginning, it was for UNESCO. Then I also worked here for the World Food Program, Kenya Country Office. And so right now, I'm actually back at UNESCO, still based in in Nairobi. And yeah, it was always my wish. I mean, even when I was going to university to join the United Nations, because I, I wanted to contribute to the Sustainable Development Goals. And that is one way of of doing it. So I really believe in the UN agenda. I think the UN is very important as a convener. We need multilateralism more than ever. And yeah, the issues that we are facing are extremely, I mean, if we look at the current situation, geopolitical situation, and also the, the climate change, right? Like even here in Nairobi, it's January now. It's supposed to be our summer but it's raining, flooding, and there is heavy storms all the time. So you just see the weather conditions become more and more extreme. So climate change is real. It's here. And I think we can all, we are all witnessing it already. So there are different ways in, in contributing. And, and I think everybody can, can do his or her little part. We can, we can all contribute to a, to a better outcome tomorrow. So for me, the way through the UN, but there are different ways, obviously. Fantastic. And really, I will want to tap uh, for our audience and our journey on your expertise. You have been, an, you are an expert for the private sector parts. You have, you have been exposed to many agencies. And I want really to ask this, what is the private sector role in global development? 
how critical is the role really of the private sector? We are the now from many fora. We need the private sector, uh, but how in practice they can drive the global development? How they can amplify their impact? Why we need private sector companies to find solutions to the pressing societal issues and sustainability problems is because companies drive innovation. Innovation, most of the time, comes out of private sector companies. For example, there are several companies worldwide that are producing concrete, which is able to absorb way more water than the usual concrete. So there are companies in the UK, US, where, where that are able to produce this type of uh, concrete. And this is just one example how private sector companies are important to find and to even drive the sustainability agenda. Fantastic. No, and I really want to go a bit deeper on that. You have mentioned, especially the goals, and we know that UN, the big conferences, we had first the Millennium Development Goal, now we have the Sustainable Development Goals. How these goals can work and put in practice together with the interest of private sector that we know in private sector is mainly for profit and respond to shareholders. So how do you achieve this balance, especially in projects? And how, which principle do you work and, and you guide when framing the partnership at, uh, with your work? Yeah, so no, that's a very good question. And obviously, I mean, working with the private sector, reconciling business interests uh, with the UN development agenda is, is always a bit of a challenge, but it can be done. I'm a personally, I'm a believer that this can be done. And I also see from my experience that those companies who really do well are those who are actually doing more than the bare minimum. So they are already way more advanced and they are already implementing all these sustainability practices in their business operations, they are doing way more than the minimum would require. And so obviously, when we reach out to private sector companies or they come to us, that's one of the elements that we look at. Are they a signatory of the UN Global Compact? What are their business practices? How is their ESG reporting? So there is a whole due diligence that is carried out centrally, mostly at, at headquarter level, before actually we can enter into a cooperation with any private sector company. So, and, and what I see is, yeah, smart businesses already understood that in order to do well, they also need to do good, okay? So it's not like, I think in the old model, companies used to set up their foundation. So there would be like, a small arm of the company that would look after philanthropy and, and do some window dressing, so to speak. I think, I mean, obviously, if you work globally, you see difference between continents, between countries. But I think, globally speaking, we are already surpassing that now. And those country, those companies that are really leading the discussion that are also in, in Davos this week, are those who are really already doing more than, than that. You know, they are already 
They already have, for example, electric car cars or a whole car park of electric cars for their employees. They only function with solar heating, which, for example, is very possible in a country like Kenya. So they, they already implement all these practices. And I think also where actually the UN is also challenged, because it's important that we set the goals, we bring everybody together. The UN is a great convener, right? It's not to bring all member states around one table, especially if you look at what is currently happening in the world. But issues such as climate change, they affect all countries, whether they are at war or not. We are all affected also by climate change. So it's very difficult to bring all parties around one table. So that's already a big achievement on its own. And I think which is sometimes a bit over overlooked. But the UN has this advantage of being also a neutral convener, right? <clears throat> and then we need to debate, we need to agree on common goals and implement them. And so, yeah, so for example, a couple of months ago in September 2023, we witnessed a very interesting development. For the first time, companies were part of, selected companies were part of, let's say, the UN Security Council special session on humanitarian aid, where the executive director of the World Food Program, Cindy McCain, addressed the audience and really called upon private sector companies to step up their efforts and to help UN entities such as the World Food Program to provide humanitarian assistance, to drive innovation forward, to make sure that no one is left behind. And fantastic. It's really, it's really I want to go a bit deeper also on that because coming from the development, also having the business side and the discussion. Sometimes there is a bit of skepticism in development circles about cooperation with private sectors. And I want to ask you a bit also, at this, uh, can you share with us some example, specific example of successful partnership between your work, the UN and private sector, and how you have overcome also this skepticism that sometimes in development circles is there against uh, private sector collaboration. Mm. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm dealing with that on an almost everyday basis. Huh? <laughs> so I'm always saying that there is actually, it's not so difficult to go out there and to find companies who are willing to support our goals. It's actually more difficult internally within the UN organization and the advantage of having worked for several organizations in a similar role is that I can say this holds true in the various UN organizations I worked for. It's more difficult to have, let's say, internal buy-in and vetting of the company than actually bringing this company on board, right? Because, I mean, already, as I say, to bridge business interests with UN interests is already not an easy topic. Then you identify let's say, a, a perfect private sector partner, you bring them in the organization and you realize now the real work starts because you have to do the advocacy. You have to explain to your colleagues in the legal department, in the finance department, in the partnerships unit, why this company is an added value to your already existing partnership base. Because obviously you also need to see 
how this new partner will fit in into an already existing network. So that is, you know, also something you need to look at and what kind of yeah, reputational risks we might face if we work with this or that company. And yeah, each UN organization has slightly different rules when it comes to, for example, working with companies from the extractive industry or pharmaceutical companies, etc. So there are some industry sectors where we exercise more caution than with other groups. So one example I wanted to share with you is for, um, that I a partnership in which I was heavily involved was a partnership with Procter & Gamble and UNESCO. And it was a partnership for the benefited young women and girls in Senegal. It was through a course-related marketing campaign. So basically, Procter & Gamble was selling female hygiene products in Europe. So there were some selected countries in which this marketing campaign was running. One of them was France. The other one was Romania and also Bulgaria. And so we came up, we, UNESCO and Procter & Gamble, we said we had so many meetings in Geneva, in Paris, where we said several... Sometimes we locked ourselves into a room for half a day and we had these, you know, creative discussions about how a, a, the advertising actually could look like, the advertising for the, for the product, how we can also give justice to the use of UNESCO's name and logo, which is extremely precious. So that's why we really wanted to sit in all these meetings and to make sure there is nothing that is sort of that might become sort of dangerous for for us as the UN organization. Because, you know, the private sector is good, is very dynamic, but sometimes they go too fast and uh, maybe don't validate things. And then something might be out there on TV and, and you, you're not okay with it, right? So we had all these creative sessions. We agreed that nothing would go out, no content would go out, which is not vetted by UNESCO. Okay, because we had our experiences. So basically, and so that partnership aimed at raising funds. So through this course-related marketing campaign, so for the sale of each pack of these hygiene products, Procter & Gamble was giving UNESCO a given amount of funds. I think it, it, was, it was a minimum contribution because it was actually harnessing the power of selling you know, many of these packs, which then resulted in, in actually millions of contributions for UNESCO. But per pack, I think it was only like 15 cents. And so that was donated for, for each pack that was sold, 15 cents were donated to UNESCO. And then that went into a basic literacy and numeric skills training for young women and girls in Senegal. Where in your rural areas you have, and, and not far from Dakar, you have women in some rural areas that you have like 80% of women that are illiterate. And so that's where we implemented this program. It was a fantastic program, which was also coupled with a social media campaign. So, and then actually young girls who were actually buying these products also participated in a well, that was another marketing sort of event, but I found it fantastic because it went beyond the course of literacy, education, and, and skills for, for Senegalese women because it also then 
So there was one winner who was announced and this French young woman then got to travel to Senegal and live in a host country, in a host family in Senegal. And so happened to be that happened to be quite a wealthy family in, in Senegal. And so then she also, I mean, Procter & Gamble filmed her experience and it also sort of contributed to a better cultural intercultural communication and knowledge of this country, you know, because we know how Africa is generally perceived, but there is also a lot of wealth in Africa. And so it was in a way also kind of, that was a bit of a byproduct of partnership was also to shed a bit of a different light on a country like Senegal and to bring more to, to, let's say, the knowledge of the general public at large, because that was a social media campaign. It, it went viral on Facebook and Twitter. And actually, for each like that we got for the campaign, we also raised more funds. So it was a fantastic program. There was a lot of resistance at the beginning. That was your question, because obviously, internally, we never worked at such a large scale with a consumer goods company. And so there, you know, UNESCO's name and logo was sort of directly attached to one product. And so there was a lot of internal discussion as to should we do this or not? And what would be the repercussions? And do we want to see UNESCO's name associated with this brand? And obviously, do a due diligence on any private sector company. Nobody has completely white sleeps, right? So obviously there were also some red flags coming out and that was a heated debate. I remember how heated it was, but well, we sort of managed internally to still progress. And I think what really helped is that actually our then director general, so really the head, I mean, the top of the organization was involved in this partnership she wanted this to happen and she was driving it. And I think that was one element, critical element of success. She wanted this to happen and it happened. Fantastic. And it's really, you can see it. Thank you for sharing this because, you know, it's really important to see how in practice, especially partnership and discussion and work there, and how is also a lesson for people, you know, on change and how dynamics internal politics, the buy-in and the discussion. And it comes out that when top leadership is committed, even from development organization, and of course, partnership can be rolled up and work. And you mentioned before the beneficiaries and the work. And usually, I want to, usually sometimes we've, it's felt that uh, this is the last bit. Uh, you know, sometimes there have been some criticism on some campaign, maybe the private sector is not reaching completely. So I want to know how you ensure the tangible impact of the partnership when when establishing it how you ensure that uh, you get positive outcome especially for the benefit for the people on the ground and then maybe if you have also some other one one example or two for us mm -hmm. sure 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 of course Samuel. so no i mean that is then let's say the core business of the un right that is sort of our business is to know where our beneficiaries are and where let's say the right target population is so, for example, to come back to this example with uh, Procter and & Gamble and, and UNESCO in Senegal, we, the UN and, and UNESCO, work very closely with the government. So we define the development goals together with our host government. 
And so for example, for, for Senegal, it was very important to increase adult literacy. Also give primary education to as many children as, as possible, ideally to everybody, but also to increase adult literacy, especially among women. And so we really worked with the Senegalese government and, and we knew where, let's say, the most needy populations are. And then we also agreed with with partner because, for example, Procter & Gamble at the beginning, they wanted us to work in another country in Africa where, and I'm not going to reveal which one, but it was basically a country which for them had more business interests than Senegal. Okay, so they didn't want to go into Senegal. They wanted us to work elsewhere. And so we said, okay, if you want to work on adult literacy and especially improving literacy and numeric skills of women, there is not much you, you should do in that country because they are already quite, let's say, at the forefront on these. They don't really need that. And so, obviously, we are not going to be, the UN is not going to be hijacked by the private sector implementing their business interests. That's not going to happen. So, there we pushed back and we said, okay, thank you. We understand that this country is of business interest to you. You see a future market in that African country for you, but for us, that's not where our beneficiaries are. They are rather, and then we gave them some other countries in, in, in Africa, Francophone and Anglophone, where actually this investment is more needed, so to speak. And then they agreed with uh, they agreed to Senegal. But at the beginning, for example, they, they didn't think of uh, Senegal. They had another agenda. Yeah. And I think that was also interesting to witness that actually the UN does push back, right? And so if, let's say, the business interests don't meet the, let's say, the interests of the beneficiary or what governments try to achieve together with the UN for their countries, we push back. We don't embark on a partnership which uh, does not reach this, the so-called, you know, the most vulnerable ones because we are there to serve the most vulnerable ones so that nobody is left behind. And again, if the UN would not be looking at these people and would together with the NGO community, well, then I don't know who would, right? No, no, that is very important. Thank you for this example, because you really see the behind the scene discussion and negotiation and war, and also the role and the knowledge that comes from the development sector to how also address and work together with the company for the reaching out the correct beneficiary and audience. So this is really, it's really important. And subsequent to that question, I want to, now you have, you are now, I mean, at the top level, you're discussing with private sector partnership, you are working with different agencies, now with UNESCO and others. So I want to ask, what is your vision for this future collaboration with the sector? So what changes do you see maybe of the approach do you see is going to increase or is going to be more critical? So how do you see the, the panorama developing? Sure. No, very good question, Samuele. So what I see and what I can witness already now in terms of upcoming trends and what is going to be even more important in future is that the issue of blended finance, yeah? So that you have, let's say, public sector funding, which is sort of pooled 
with private sector funding, with funding from multilateral development banks, for example. So I think we will see more and more sort of consortia being built up in future. I mean, I see that already here at the country level in Kenya. It's also a very particular place because it's very vibrant. It's very dynamic. There are so many impact investment funds that are active in from Kenya, actually, and serving the whole African continent. And so what I see also, these impact investment funds, they want to do good, but I don't know how to do how to go about it. So they come to the UN and we want to work with them, but we don't necessarily have the expertise. You see, most of our staff are not coming with a private sector business MBA background. It's mostly, especially at UNESCO, experts in world heritage, in education, experts. We have ocean scientists, water scientists. We have great experts on board, but not necessarily business people. And I think, and that's maybe also a call to to those young people that are out there and maybe want to join the UN or NGOs. If I think in future, if you have a background in which you have solid knowledge about financial instruments, you know, for example, how impact funds operate and you... So you, you do sustainable kind of a sustainable finance program. I mean, these degrees exist nowadays. I think you can also bring a lot of value into that space because that's where I see a bit of a missing link between, let's say, the impact investment funds. Then you have also all these big pool funds, such as the Green Climate Fund, the Adaptation Fund, that have way more capital then let's say the the usual sort of bilateral donor governments with their respective aid agencies. So, for example, for Germany, it's, it's, it's GIZ or AFD for France. So, yeah, so I see just these multilateral development funds are gaining more and more sort of, I mean, money is, is it has always power, right? And so they very important in this whole climate change sustainability discussion. And we need to work more and more collaboratively across sectors. So, and, and we can't do it with government funding alone. You, we see now we live in a world with at least three wars. And let's say the development cooperation budget is shrinking because Countries in the Northern Hemisphere have now different, let's say, priorities, which is in a way also understandable. So finances that were maybe in the past available or would have been channeled, for example, to fight the hunger crisis in the Horn of Africa, we see now way less funding coming in because it's reprogrammed at the European level, for example, for other let's say, more domestic purposes. So what is important is, I think, in future, it doesn't look like uh, these wars are going to end, unfortunately, anytime soon. So we have to live within that situation. God knows, way too ready. So I think we will need to be in a situation where we truly have more and more cooperation and these consortia between public finance private funding and government funding really working together. And so, for example, 
worked at the at the World Food Program last year. We also built up a new program which was aiming to <clears throat> develop a sustainable fish value chain in Lake Tokana. So in is in the north of Kenya. So this is the world's biggest desert lake. And it has a lot of, the, the fish volume is, is rather important. So it's really the World Food Program invested <clears throat> some $10 million into really creating the whole value chain of the fish production already to, to an, equip fishermen along the lake with fishing gear and, you know, state of the art fishing gear and not some, let's say, outdated fishing gear. So to really also train fishermen on, on how to how to catch the fish, the, the motorboats, etc. So the whole infrastructure, also the market development. <clears throat> so where would this fish be transported? In Nairobi, for example, there is a high demand for fish. Most of the fish you have in, in restaurants in Nairobi is imported from other countries. Although there is enough fish in Kenya to feed all Kenyans. Right. So it's really to invest in the value chain. And so there we, we saw private sector funding mingling together with funding from actually the, the Dutch embassy. And the private sector plays an important role in this fish value chain creation. So and I think that was one example, concrete example. But I think these examples will be more. Fantastic. And thank you so much, Elvira, for this and perspective of the future. I can see also from my personal example, coming from the development, then I went for the MBA. And you can see and speak the language of the two worlds that you are able now to mingle and you can place yourself and discuss. And 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 really maybe, and I thank you also for the great example of the Turkana project and the work. And really, I want to jump a bit on this. You have given us the perspective and I'm sure many people are listening to us all around the world. They want to ask, wow, okay, I want to, do more. I want maybe to become a the global development professional. I want to become, you know, I want to give and do something. So which advice you want to give maybe to young professionals that want to become experts like you in sustainability? Yeah. So first advice would really be follow your passion. I mean, that, that advice has been given several times, but it's actually, especially if you're working in the, let's say, development cooperation space, it's not an easy advice to follow. So, for example, you know that, for example, you know, landing a fixed-term job in any UN agency is sort of perceived, and I think, unfortunately, a bit rightly so, perceived as almost impossible because there is so much competition, etc. And that's true. I mean, let's be honest. For example, if you have a job which is advertised, for example, in UNESCO in Paris, which is obviously also a beautiful location to work in, right? So you might have something like almost 1,000 candidates who will apply for one position. Obviously, if you then start, uh, if you work <clears throat> really where, let's say, the heart of the matter is happening, and that is in the developing countries, you will have obviously a better chance. So I would really advise young people to start rather pursuing a trying to have a if they want to build up their career is actually to go and join an NGO or there are so many you know different initiatives at the country level 
and many countries, I mean, Italy, France, Sweden, Spain, they also have these, uh, let's say, programs for young people where they can actually join the United Nations under what is called the Associate Expert Program. So it's it's highly competitive, but it is at the national level. So if you are selected through this national, let's say, selection, you are then placed at a given UN agency. And then it's the UN agency that decides if they actually send you to Asia or to Africa, or if they if your first posting is going to be with headquarters in in, in New York or or Geneva or Vienna or, or what have you. Or UNEP, for example, the, the the headquarters of the UN Environment Program is in Nairobi, in Kenya. So there are different opportunities. But why is it difficult to follow your passion if you are in the development world? Because so many people will label you as a dreamer. Maybe starting with your parents, who might say, you know, it's maybe <laughs> more secure to work for. I don't know, a bank or create your own business or do something or become a lawyer, whatever. So so it's, it's actually because it's sometimes, you know, people also look down upon you because you, they think you are a dreamer, you are an idealist and you don't really know how the world is functioning. You know, you want to make, make the world a better place, but hey, it's not because you want to make it a better place that it's going to be a better place. Well, I think if everybody had this kind of drive of doing his or her little share of trying to make the world a better place, we could get there. But I'm obviously an idealist, but I'm also practicing that. And I think that's also important because things get tough in your you know, work. When you join the UN, for example, you have to sign up to the possibility of being posted anywhere in the world. So you can be moved from one country or even one continent to another. And then in in relatively short period of time, you have to adapt to a totally new context and and work in a totally different place and and have also this cultural sensitivity to adapt and and thrive in a totally new environment. So which also means that it's it's a quite a it's a choice. But it also has an impact on your on your personal life. So, but yeah, so that's I guess the advice I would give is to follow your passion. And I think in future we need more finance specialists. We really need people who understand how financial products investment work and how can we bring, let's say, unlock private capital for development for the development goals. Fantastic. And thank you so much, Elvira, for this advice and for this wonderful episode full of insights. And I'm sure we'll put and we'll have a lot of discussion and maybe we'll reach out for, for more from you. Thank you so much. It's been an honor and pleasure. Thank you, Samuel. It was also a pleasure for me to speak uh, with you. And yeah, looking forward to, to our continued conversation. Fantastic. Are you satisfied after this full episode? Let's continue together our sustainability journey.